The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us for today's episode with Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Jason Brady, President and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Jason is a seasoned fixed income investor at a time when fixed income offers unusual challenges and opportunities. We'll be hearing more about both today. Welcome, Jason and Ben, and thanks for joining me on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you very much. So stocks are mixed today, bond yields are up a bit, and for some reason, Bitcoin is still on a tear. Meanwhile, banking turmoil continues following the news of the takeover, or some are calling it the take-under, of Credit Suisse by UBS over the weekend. So Jason, I will turn to you first. This is a very strange deal. It was brokered and backstopped by Swiss regulators. Credit Suisse did not have a problem loan book, and holders of the bank's contingent convertible bonds, or cocoa bonds, were wiped out. That's extremely unusual. So I need to ask you, as a fixed income investor, should other bondholders consider this an alarming precedent? With regard to the risks in the banking system, I think we've seen already that um, uh, there is there are some real challenges uh, from a cross-border basis. Uh, Credit Suisse would have told you and did tell you uh, last week that the Silicon Valley Bank uh, challenges were, had nothing to do with them. Uh, but in fact, both banks had a real duration of mismatch. What do I mean by that? Uh, for Silicon Valley Bank, it was depositors um, and the long-term bonds that Silicon Valley Bank had bought. For Credit Suisse, it was really their wealth management franchise and their profitability. Um, and as that had disintegrated over the course of the last year, the bank became less and less viable. So the alternative, the additional tier one or cocoa bonds that you describe, um, the write down, the reason that's controversial now is that uh, equity holders retained some value, whereas uh, bondholders, albeit very junior bondholders, lost everything. So I expect that to be litigated for a number of years. Uh, the takeaway really is that uh, there are mechanisms in place to add equity without going to equity markets. Um, and that's what the Swiss National Bank decided to do here, uh, albeit, again, somewhat controversially. So, again, should other bondholders worry that this is an alarming precedent? Because typically bondholders come first and equity holders come last. Uh, that's true. And in fact, uh, you've seen a few other cases where uh, regulators have decided to change the priority of payments. Um, actually, in 08, there was some uh, conversation uh, around the priority of payments for pensions, which were which were somewhat advantaged versus bondholders. So it's a precedent, yes. Uh, uh, the European Banking Authority is out today saying uh, that uh, AT1 bomb holders uh, in their mechanism will receive priority versus equity. I think what we're talking about here really is uh, a little bit kind of 
uh, more of an indicator than anything else. Uh, the reality is the Credit Suisse common equity holders got about $3 billion, uh, and the AT1 holders were about $17 billion. So three divided by 17 is what the recovery would have been versus zero. Uh, better than zero, but, but certainly not a lot. I, I think overall bondholders should be on alert, um, but I don't expect this to set a precedent longer term. Do, do these so, things? Go ahead, Ben. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if, when we we keep hearing about these kind of decisions made by regulators, does it undermine um, investor faith in kind of the the rule of law that's supposed to guide some of these kind of decision making processes? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think what regulators are trying to navigate here is how to do something quickly or how to do it perfectly. Uh, and in this case, they're deciding, I think, for good reason on quickly. Uh, ultimately, though, you're right. Uh, when you start to have these, what you know, what what Credit Suisse AT1 holders would view as capricious decisions, uh, without really a whole lot of time or thought, uh, it, it really does call into question the the sort of stability of the regulatory regime. You know, ultimately, in signs of stress, regardless of regulator or market participants, I will tell you uh, that things happen that you didn't think could happen, and that's really the theme uh, I think of the last few weeks. So are there any other takeaways from the Credit Suisse deal? That I think the, the cross-border nature of the financial services uh, industry is real. Um, and, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and, and potentially First Republic um, are small banks in the U.S., uh, but the challenges that they have are, are really representative Again, it's a duration mismatch question. Uh, I don't think it's something that we need to worry about JP Morgan or B of A or even names like BNP Paribas or Barclays in Europe. Uh, but I do think that um, the duration mismatch challenge is real and one that is shared by a huge number of market participants. Does um, does it make a difference if you were a European bank buying uh, bonds with negative yields versus an American bank buying ten-year uh, bonds with uh, a positive yield, albeit a, albeit a very small one? Not really. Um, optically, it feels stupid to be buying negative yielding bonds. It's certainly <laughs> something I think most people should avoid. Uh, but the change in price from, say, negative 50 basis points to positive 2% and zero to, you know, two and a half percent, that's not the way the math works, but is about is about similar. Okay. And uh, actually, European banking authorities were much more aggressive, are much more aggressive about regulating duration mismatch than, than banking authorities are here in the U.S. That's interesting. So I think the big question everybody is thinking now is whether the banking industry's problems have been contained or whether we should worry about contagion. We've had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank about a week and a half ago. Signature went under. It'll be bought by New York Community Bank. First Republic Bank is wobbling. And so what happens next, Jason? Uh, the, the short answer is uh, who knows? And that's yeah. really kind of the concern here. Yeah. Um, I, I, one thing I think is extremely important is to note is uh, what you've seen from deposit numbers across, let's take the U.S. banking system over the course of the last two years, has been nothing short of remarkable. I mean, everybody has been aware of the fact that more money is in the banking system in the form of deposits, say, in 2021 than in, than in 2019 due to a whole bunch of things, uh, fiscal stimulus and monetary uh, uh, policy being two big examples. What's maybe less well remarked is that for every bank, that deposit number has started to come down 
as many investors are saying, hey, why would I give a bank dollars and get almost nothing when I can go invest in fixed income markets, even short-term fixed income markets, and get something that's now notable? So every bank is seeing some form of deposit decline. It's just a question of how they managed it. Uh, what, what I also found interesting is that Bank of America was on the tape as saying, hey, look, actually, we are the beneficiaries of this. Uh, stronger banks are actually seeing massive deposit inflows uh, versus deposit outflows uh, due to some of the challenges for, of, of mid-sized banks. So as if we don't have enough happening in the financial world, the Federal Reserve is meeting this week. <laughs> the Fed faces quite a dilemma. It needs to cool inflation, which has been still running hot, but it can't take the risk of destabilizing the financial system further with more interest rate hikes. You're expecting the Fed to lift rates by 25 basis points, and that seems to be the popular trade among among futures traders. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the market can handle that? Uh, I think the first reason is that 25 basis points in the grand scheme of things isn't really that big a deal. Uh, what's a much bigger deal is how much the Fed has moved over the course of last year. Remember, they just started raising rates a year ago. So what we've seen last year has been ex- remarkable, generational uh, in both its size and its speed. Uh, so that's one. Two, the the Fed cannot allow inflation to get further out of control uh, because imagine that world, uh, the Fed stops, inflation continues to rise, and then the Fed has to do even more and and the financial stability uh, becomes even more in question. So it's it's really how do I take the the best of bad decisions? And 25 basis points to me seems to be um, a signaling mechanism that they need to be on the inflation beat. Uh, it's not going to make a huge difference one way or the other. And they'll try to solve the banking uh, challenges that we see through macroprudential or other regulatory moves versus the versus the funds rate. And uh, Jason, I've seen some people uh, say that the, what, the the stress in the banking system has been equivalent to a rate hike of 1.5%. Uh, um, it, it sounds like you di- you would disagree with that kind of analysis. I don't know about that kind of analysis. I think that that magnitude, I've seen other estimates of 25 to 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is the Fed has been actually working against the market and financial conditions over the course of the last, say, four or five months where markets have risen and generally there's been you know less, less challenges. And so the fact that now that you're getting the challenges, the Fed really uh, are working, it's working in parallel with or in the same directions as the Fed, it'd be very odd for the Fed to go the other way. Um, an example of this, frankly, is is the Fed going the other way. Uh, quantitative tightening, i.e. The, the decline in the Fed's balance sheet, has suddenly been somewhat reversed by uh, the bank term funding program, potentially, but also the deposit window, uh, where now the Fed's balance sheet is rising. So ultimately, the Fed's trying to do targeted things uh, to help a uh, banking crisis and not lose sight of their inflation fighting authority and, frankly, credibility. It's a tall order. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah, but they, well, ma- they made their bed. Uh, they made their bed when they overstayed transitory and, and you know, they're, catch- they're in catch-up mode now uh, and inflation is, is quite stubborn. Right. They made their bed, but the rest of us are lying in it. Sure. 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 Like and- way of looking at it. Go ahead. Sorry, Jason, should the Fed have seen the issues in the banking system coming um, with the kind of rate hikes that they've, uh, as you point out, it's been pretty massive over the last year? Um, 
I mean, I get I get very worried about using normative words like should. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's clear that actually they did see it, and and uh, the question really is, what did they or should they quote unquote have done about it? Um, you know, what just digging a little bit into uh, sort of uh, how how banks think about their balance sheets. There's available for sale securities, which more or less they're marking to market, and there's held to maturity, which more or less they're not. Um, and any sort of decent analysis of of information that was widely available, for example, on Silicon Valley Bank, would have told you that, hey, look, the held to maturity book is is contains a bunch of losses, and and that might be a problem. Uh, what really caused the problem, though, again, was the huge amount of deposits, particularly uninsured deposits, and the duration of the of the loan book was long, and the duration of the deposit book obviously is short. Now, borrow short, lend long is how banks traditionally make money, so this is not unusual, uh, but that's really the sort of weakness. So I think the Fed saw it. Uh, the question is, why did or didn't they do something about it? And the answer is really uh, deposit flight is very difficult to predict. Got it. There were some interesting stories that came out over the weekend that the San Francisco Fed had, in fact, been very concerned about Silicon Valley over the past year mm -hmm. and had made recommendations that the bank apparently didn't follow. I, I don't know if you saw those stories. Uh, I saw that, and uh, BlackRock also uh, was. There was uh, stories about how BlackRock warned Silicon Valley Bank. So uh, there's stories about the the whether or not there was a risk manager on duty. I mean, all these are reasonable stories. I think at the end of the day, um, you saw massive deposits in. Uh, partly as a function of Silicon Valley Bank's uh, business model, uh, mm -hmm. and then and then deposits out also partly as a result of their business model. I think that the Silicon Valley Bank, despite what happened at Credit Suisse, I actually think the Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, failure is more about and will have a larger effect on credit in the tech ecosystem than really a larger commentary on the U.S. banking system. That's a whole separate call. And yep. <laughs> but can I, can I ask a follow-up on that, though? Because sure, sure. one of the things that's been so interesting is seeing uh, at least big tech uh, really rebound um, in this kind of flight to safety that went on um, as people abandoned banks. Uh, uh, but if this is also about extending credit to tech, big tech won't be impacted by that. But it would seem that anything outside that window of big tech could have problems going ahead. I think that there's a funding challenge at sort of less than big tech, and there's no funding challenge at big tech, right? And that's right. the big difference. So, um, you know, obviously Amazon's business isn't going swimmingly. They just announced another 9,000 person layoff. Uh, but, you know, if you look at uh, business models that may, may be resilient in in the context of a recession, you know, tech often comes up. Um, certainly, they were that that sector was resilient in 2020. Although I wouldn't expect a recession we see going forward to look like 2020. So yeah, I think that's right. Um, another another argument to be made is that when you take away the competition for big tech, um, it's better to be big tech. Um, so any kind of startup is going to have less of a challenge. I think you could make the same argument about banks. Um, small and mid-sized banks are going to be much more challenged going forward, and that's you know as is true with regulation everywhere it benefits scale players it's the era of bigness so yes. let's let's take a look now at some of the companies reporting earnings this week we like to do that in every call and ben i'm going to turn to you we'll hear from general mills and darden on thursday general mills stock has rallied almost 30 percent in the past year that's a pretty good run what do you expect the company to report 
Yeah, it's had a good run over the last uh, 12 months. But if you look at this year, it hasn't been great. It's down uh, a little under uh, 4%, about 3.9% so far. It was actually yeah. worse worse than that, um, partially because defense was just really out of style to, to start the year. And now we've had this uh, flight to safety, which did help uh, staple stocks like uh, General Mills. I think the big issue for them is um, you know, they they raised their full year outlook um, at a conference in February. Um, and it basically, that's taken out the uh, concerns about what's going to happen this quarter. Um, I think the bigger issue is going to be uh, what happens going ahead um, if the uh, if the raise was solely about what was going on in this quarter and maybe next quarter's estimates will go lower. Um, there's also concerns about the pet food business. Um, there's uh, some Nielsen data that has been showing that it's not growing as fast as I think investors have hoped. Um, and so I think what is really going to um, determine how the stock does is basically what they can say about the uh, the pet food, what could they say in the guidance. And also, I, I think it depends on the market uh, somewhat. If the um, if the, the news is mediocre, but the market continues to be kind of in a risk off mode, um, that might be okay. But if the investors start feeling uh, good about stocks again, and you get kind of a mediocre reading from General Mills, the stock could have problems. Those big tech stocks will keep flying. Yes, they will. <laughs> All right. So let's look at Darden. Um, we wrote a bullish story about it this past week. Can you summarize the bullish case and talk about the outlook for fiscal third quarter earnings? Sure. So the bullish case was uh, pretty simple. Is that being a full service restaurant is not easy right now. Um, there are, uh, but it's actually not terrible for Darden. Darden is a very good operator. Um, its biggest chain is, of course, Olive Garden, but it owns smaller ones uh, like Longhorn Steakhouse. It owns Capital Grill, um, and it's done a very good job of both managing expect expect um, sorry managing expenses, but also um, not raising prices so much that um, it's it's actually been sacrificing a little bit of margin to keep prices uh, increases below the rate of inflation. So consumers can uh, feel a little bit like they're you know getting a, a good deal still, even though prices are going up. Um, and they've been able to take market share from others. And so really it just comes down to a, a quality argument that this is a company that has gotten to be very good in its sector, pretty much dominates it. Um, and one that we think can continue being that quality company going forward. And if you look at the stock, it actually held up pretty well during the, the past couple of weeks of uh, this banking chaos when the market was uh, um, was in tumbling mode. Uh, Darden didn't do much. Um, it's actually sitting right now at a uh, just under 150, and that's a pretty uh, significant technical level for the stock. If it breaks through that, um, it, there could be some more gains ahead. Uh, of course, the biggest issue is going to be what these earnings show. Um, it has to show investors that it really is this quality stock, um, and that means that it does have to beat earnings. Uh, they're expecting $2.25 a share. Um, that'd be up from $1.93. And the same store sales uh, continue to grow. Um, it's actually looking for about 8.9% in same store sales. We think that it's uh, probably going to be able to do that, but we're obviously not worried about making a call on that stock uh, heading into this earnings report. Got to love Olive Garden. So let's look at the housing sector for a moment. Housing has been in the headlights for a variety of reasons. There are fluctuations in mortgage rates, and now there's a cloud hanging over regional banks, which are closely tied to the housing market. KB Home reports on Wednesday. What is the outlook for earnings and the stock? Well, earnings are going to be a little bit lower than they were a year ago. It's, uh, expectations are for $1.13 versus $1.47. But 
they've actually, the stock has done quite well this year. It's up 12%. Um, I think right now it's getting a lift a little bit from the uh, fact that bond yields are falling and that should be uh, good for mortgage rates and keep mortgage rates down. Um, I think that the biggest trick for KB Home on its earnings report is, you know, we're, we are at this moment where, um, you know, where it, things have changed uh, quite clearly. And there's going to be a question, I think, of whether, um, mortgages are going to be available to everyone or banks going to um, be more careful in in writing mortgages. Um, and I think that's going to be the big worry. And I wonder how uh, KB is going to be able to uh, to discuss that because I think there's a lot of unknowns here still. Maybe there isn't going to be an issue with the uh, um, with banks wanting to extend credit. Um, it could be that those those regional banks are, feel just fine with it. Um, but it'll be very interesting to watch uh, what KB has to say. So I'm, I'm a little worried about it uh, heading into this, but those lower uh, mortgage rates are going to be a pretty nice tailwind for the stock. I want to look at the commercial real estate market for a moment. Hal has asked a question about the risks in commercial real estate for all the other smaller banks. And I wonder if either of you can can talk about that. What What kind of a risk is this and how should we prepare for it? Um, I can give that a whirl. So um, absolutely in the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, larger banks were essentially discouraged from lending uh, significantly and, and really have pretty good balance sheets today. Uh, regional banks were largely exempted from uh, some of this and more particularly with regard to commercial real estate uh, became absolutely grew their market share, actually in residential and in commercial. Uh, so that's one of the risks to commercial banks balance sheets today, especially obviously in the context of office property uh, being notably uh, less valuable than it was pre-pandemic. So that's, that's one of the longer term challenges, I think, that uh, small and medium-sized banks have. Uh, and uh, other elements of this are, are showing up in cracks in financial markets. For example, in the commercial mortgage-backed securities, the traded commercial mortgage uh, uh, market, which is starting to feel quite soggy. Something to watch out for. So we'll get back to earnings in a minute. But Jason, I wanted to ask you what investors ought to do, ordinary people with their money, as a result of all the news flow in the past couple of weeks. The banking mess has raised some serious questions. And I know people are asking you whether they should keep their cash in the bank. What do you think? So first, I think that uh, anyone who has less than $250,000 in the bank in cash in their checking account is in pretty good shape, uh, and they should not be concerned. Uh, what we're seeing actually in some of these rescues is that actually uh, all deposits are being insured to include Silicon Valley Bank. And lastly, uh, if anyone has more than 250 k probably it's in a bank like uh, one of the largest five in the U.S., just given where deposits are, and those actually are seeing deposit inflows. So that's the first thing is to allay that concern. Uh, the second, if anyone owns securities, the custody banks uh, really are are safe in the context of how they handle uh, your your securities. And so while this can go up and down in value, uh, the fact that you may not be able to access that is not a concern. Money markets, also not a significant concern. Most of them are now government-backed as opposed to prime, which is to say they have things other than governments in them. So the last thing is really, okay, what should you do once you stop panicking about the cash that you have in, in your bank account that you can't get out of an ATM? 
can? And the answer is, in, in our view, that you really have a lot more options today than you had a year and a half ago. The upside of this huge raise in rates is that you know fixed income, quality fixed income, can do things in your portfolio that it really hasn't been able to do since around 2008. Uh, with the 10-year Treasury at 348 today and the 10-year uh, Treasury uh, inflation protected note at 133, you have real yields and uh, in, in the tip and generally uh, stronger yields in, in the 10-year Treasury, such that when you see ructions in the financial markets for risky assets, those securities can gain in value, which is exactly what happened actually over the course of last week. So I think that's actually a, a big change from many investors' longer-term experience, and I would, I would suggest folks take advantage of that. What about buying short-term Treasuries? That has been a favored trade lately. Does it still make sense? Uh, it makes sense, but uh, we t started off this by talking about duration mismatches, right? So if someone went into a financial professional's office and said, I need my cash in three months and I'm going to go invest it in super risky frontier market stocks, any any sort of fiduciary would say, hey, that's a bad idea. That's a duration mismatch. Uh, similarly, if folks are taking their longer term investment dollars and rolling three month treasuries, um, it's less likely to lead, of course, to big losses. Uh, in fact, there's no likelihood to lead to big losses, uh, but it is also a duration mismatch. So those folks that were getting five plus percent in their short term treasuries are now having yields that are about 100 basis points lower and could go even lower to the extent we see a recession later this year. Um, the last time I was asked this kind of question was in 2007. And you were better off in 2007 having slightly longer duration uh, than rolling uh, T-bills, which quickly went to zero in, in yield, not in price. <laughs> right, right. Good point. Good point. What about international bonds? Are you much involved there? Uh, we are uh, Thornburg Investment Management's uh, global asset manager, so we have assets all over the world and, and navigate that on behalf of our clients. I would tell you that for most, most U.S. investors, uh, and indeed most uh, investors uh, of any kind, uh, what you're seeing in the U.S. is is actually a much, not only better real returns, uh, but actually a much wider array of, of instruments. So um, in most markets, you're really getting government bonds and that's it. Uh, government bonds are often to include in the U.S. an instrument of policy. And so it's it's a much less interesting market. In the U.S., uh, because banks have been so heavy, heavily regulated, you're seeing a lot of lending occur in markets. That's good and bad. But ultimately, what it does is it gives investors a lot more options and opportunities. So for us, international is, is interesting. Um, there are sometimes uh, things to do there. But for most investors, it, it doesn't make sense for it to be a focus area. All right. And what about the unusual degree of volatility that we're seeing in the bond market? Do you think that will continue? And if so, how should investors navigate it? I think it will continue. Um, one of the interesting things is we, we've seen uh, volatility, for example, in short-term rates, say the two-year U.S. government bond, be higher than it's been at any point since Black Monday in 1987. So that's uh, quite a long history. Uh, I don't know. Uh, raise your hand, everybody who was uh, trading two years in 1987. Um, but what's also interesting is if you look at the volatility and its expression since then, uh, there was significant volatility all the way through the financial crisis, and then many years of very, very subdued volatility in rates and in general. Um, so I think where we are with higher rates today is better payment uh, for risk, but also more price risk, more volatility in the marketplace. So I would expect that to continue. 
Okay, so let's go to some listener questions. Hell wants to know, is it correct that SVB and others could have hedged the duration risk and still been profitable? What do you think, Jason? I think they could have hedged their risk and been profitable, or alternatively, they could have not gone as far out on the curve and had less risk. Um, banks generally pay very little for deposits, and what you see is a lending book that's likely to be profitable because they have a spread on the short-term rate. So I think it's just really a question of how much risk they were able to find in credit markets or how much they were allowed to take. Keep in mind, uh, they thought they, they probably thought that they were doing the the best thing by taking less credit risk when in fact their duration mismatch turned out to be the problem. And is that something we ought to think about with regard to other banks? Well, clearly it's a concern for First Republic right now uh, yes. where deposit flight continues and the engineered rescue uh, package uh, from from Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen seems to not have been sufficient. Uh, but I don't think it's a problem for most banks and certainly not most very most large banks. Is there something that uh, makes First Republic different from and there's a bunch of banks rallying today. Um, it, what, what makes First Republic so problematic? Two things. Um, one association, um, so uh, also associated with the tech infrastructure. Uh, the second is a percentage of uninsured deposits. So Silicon Valley Bank had a very unusual percentage of uninsured deposits. And when those started to leave, largely because they were uh, corporate deposits from tech uh, tech startups and the tech startups were spending their money, uh, that, that became a problem. First Republic is more banking individuals with, with large balances. Uh, but those those deposits can move quickly, and uninsured depositors uh, can and should be more concerned than those that are under the FDIC limit. Sounds like we should be screening for banks with a large degree of uninsured deposits. I can tell you, uh, unsurprisingly, lots of folks on Wall Street are, are uh, already engaged in that, and those two banks in particular stand out. Uh, most banks' uh, uninsured deposit base is pretty low. Okay. So another question comes from Fred. He is looking at the Fed's rate increases and says he's been taught that it always takes nine to 12 months for the effect of rate increases to have an economic effect. So what should we take away from the fact that the Fed has been raising rates so aggressively? We're hitting about the 12-month mark now. What, what could the economic effect be? Well, long that's the the famous sort of long and variable lags phrase, uh, yes, which yes. Fr yeah. frankly is in direct opposition to a Fed that for a number of years now has said that they're data dependent. So it's sort of like uh, driving a car looking behind you um, in the context of your long and variable lags being uh, uh, sort of a result of, of economic data that has already occurred. Uh, so I think that what we can look to is how Fed rate increases have gone through markets in the past. And there have been times when there's the Fed has engineered a soft landing, notably in the mid-90s, uh, but not many and not uh, likely to be the case here, at least in my opinion, just because inflation is high. Um, this is a, a very different inflationary environment, and the Fed can't, uh, can't stop their inflation fighting uh, because of Silicon Valley Bank as much as, as maybe the markets believe that should be the case. So I would expect uh, a recession later this year, um, but not, frankly, caused by banking crisis. A deep one, shallow one? 
hard to say? Usually deeper recessions are a result of consumers getting in trouble and mm-hmm. shallower recessions maybe are a result of of uh, companies or other balance sheets being challenged. You can think about 08 depth of recession, uh, which was a con- really a lot of things, but a, particularly a consumer challenge given mortgages uh, versus 01, which was more corporate. Um, 01, despite what happened to the NASDAQ, uh, was actually a pretty shallow recession. So for me, it's it's much less about 08. I don't think we're going to see a replay of that. Relieved to hear that, certainly. So Ben, I promised we'd get back to this week's earnings. And I wanted to spend a moment talking about Nike, the company reports on Tuesday. This is a play on the consumer's health. We were just talking about the consumer and on China. So what can you tell us about Nike's earnings? And uh, Nike was uh, a really interesting stock last year, um, partially because it was it was doing terribly, and much of that was on uh, concerns around China and the China consumer. Um, and uh, it bottomed though around the same time, uh, you know, in, in October with the rest of the market. But this is also a time when China's market started doing better, and I think we're seeing that uh, feed through with Nike. Um, the company is going to see lower earnings this year. It's 56 cents uh, uh, versus 87 cents one year ago. Um, but it, there's a lot of belief among the analyst community that, uh, you know, it's the brand The brand is still intact, that people still want to own Nikes, and that's both here and that's in China, uh, that the China reopening is going to give the stock a boost and that it's going to uh, really be, have some good guidance for uh, for the year ahead. Um, so when you look at the stock, you know, it's still down uh, six point three percent over the last uh, 12 months, even after gaining four percent this year. Um, And I think there are a lot of people that are are looking at this saying that this is going to the earnings are going to be the next catalyst to drive the stock higher. Could happen. All right. One more game stop. Everybody's favorite meme stock once upon a time is reporting on Tuesday. What should we be watching for? I wish I knew. Um, there, there are almost no analysts covering the stock anymore. Um, we have uh, facts at list three. One of them is restricted, so I'm not sure who that one is. Um, but there, there really aren't any good uh, estimates anymore um, for, for the stock. And in, in many ways, it doesn't really matter that, uh, you know, it's it's a company that has uh, really not traded all that much on fundamentals for a while because of the, the meme trade, um, which gave it such a boost, but it's still in a very challenging business. And you can look at the stock and, and kind of what it's done uh, since that first uh, flurry of, of the meme trade. And it's been very gently going lower. Um, it almost looks like it's range bound, except uh, the, the highs of that range and the low of that range keep shifting downwards a little bit. And, and it just feels to me like this is what's going to keep happening with the stock that, uh, you know, that 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 flight of um, retail trading money that uh, sent it to shooting higher, um, just isn't going to be there. Um, it's it did monetize that uh, somewhat, which is going to help it. But it, this is just a stock that probably isn't going to go anywhere for a while, and has lost interest on Wall Street for sure. It really has. So, all right, Jason, I'm going to close by asking you for some predictions. Where do you see the ten-year yield ending the year? Uh, well, again, smart people tell me not to put dates and numbers <laughs> in the same sentence. But, Where do you um, see it going? Okay. Uh, I, I think we'll probably see something around uh, 3% uh, for the 10-year. So if my expectation is that you're going to see um, 
uh, more challenging economic environment. Uh, you've already moved notably from four and a quarter to three, more or less three and a half. Um, I think the more interesting thing for investors to look at is what happens to twos, tens. So people talk a lot about inversion, but it's not inversion you need to worry about. It's uninversion. Um, you know, you get into trouble uh, in markets when when the two-year goes back below in yield. That happened in 2000 at the year end. It happened in March of 07, uh, which were either right, which were both right around kind of when markets topped. And what do you think this all means for the equity market? Um, well, Nike is an interesting story, right? It's 34 times PE, so inner earnings better come out okay, right? They better have a brand franchise. Um, I think there's a lot of names and a lot of sectors uh, where there is value and you can build a portfolio of, of, of reasonably resilient businesses. But at the market level, the S&P 500 at sort of 19 times doesn't provide you a lot of margin of safety. Sounds like a stock picker's market to me. Exactly. All right, let's leave it there today. I want to thank you both for joining me. Very interesting call. No lack of things to talk about. So thanks, Jason, and thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, thanks to our thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Eric Sabitz, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, will speak with the author Malcolm Harris, who will discuss his newly released book, Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World. It's a big book, and I know that Eric has read it and should be a fascinating conversation. So listen in to that. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.